For weeks, Joan Rogers and her two daughters, 17-year-old Michelle and 14-year-old Christy, had eyed the calendar, eagerly awaiting the day of May 26, 1989. It wasn't just summer break that they were looking forward to. The girls, who dutifully did their chores and worked the family dairy farm, were excited for their first ever vacation away from home. Their father, Hal Rogers, volunteered to stay back and tend the farm in Wilshire, Ohio, so that the three women could enjoy a much-deserved trip in the Florida sun. The trio had plans to ride roller coasters at Disney World and to relax upon the warm, sandy beaches along the coast. But what should have been a week filled with sightseeing, laughter, and fun was cut short, taking a deadly turn. On June 4, 1989, Joan, Michelle, and Christie's bodies were found floating in Tampa Bay. They were naked below the waist, hogtied, with cinder blocks bound to their necks. As authorities hunted for the monster responsible for the heinous crimes, the case would eventually go cold. Years passed. That is, until one new agent brought a set of fresh eyes to the case. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. FBI Special Agent Jana Monroe oversaw this case from beginning to end, and throughout the investigation, she was determined to find answers. Because of her dedication and hard work, she had recently earned a spot with the Bureau's Elite Behavioral Sciences Unit as one of the first female criminal profilers. While at the BSU, Jana worked closely alongside St. Petersburg investigators to close the chilling case. Upon reviewing the case, one piece of evidence caught Jana's attention, a paper note with directions from the motel. Jana's sense for detail helped her notice the penmanship didn't resemble the writing of a female. She then advised the note to be blown up and plastered across billboards in the area. Within 48 hours, the suspect was identified, 46-year-old Oba Chandler. Today, Jana joins me with a look back at her distinguished career with the FBI. She details the barriers she broke that ultimately led her to work on this unique case. I'm a little bit odd in that I was about age 13 when I knew what I wanted to do. And, you know, most young people fluctuate, right? So a nurse one year, an attorney next year, a dancer. Um, The reason I knew I wanted to be in law enforcement, I had two passions. And one of them was, I love this country and that we're a nation of laws and liberties. And I wanted to be able to somehow be able to help protect that equilibrium. And the other was, I can't stand bullies. I don't like people who take advantage of other people who prey on people that they believe are vulnerable. And I thought, how can I serve these two callings? And law enforcement seemed to to be the answer. So without a role model, I didn't have anybody in my family that uh, was in law enforcement. I started um, watching TV shows and and movies, which are not terribly realistic, but it did give me at least some kind of an idea of what I'd be getting into. 
So. And can I ask, given that at this young age, you had those two callings that are um, really evolved uh, beyond that age typically, was there an influence in your family at that time or that you had been exposed to that articulated the liberties and freedoms in this country that you were so honored to be a part of? And was there something that shaped you in that way as you grasped those concepts then? That's a, that's a great question, Emily. And, and I think, yes, there was nobody in my family, but um, my dad was a projectionist. He ran movies. That's back in the days of double features and into a movie theater and watched TV. And this is, this will sound weird because I did not aspire to be an attorney, but I watched Perry Mason. If you saw an old TV show called Perry Mason, and I would look at that and how law enforcement worked with the attorneys and the court system and the judicial. And, and I was always kind of an old soul. So I would go and study that afterwards. And it's like, wow, so that's what this is all about. And everybody's got a role in our so-called justice system. And it was just very intriguing to me. So at that point, did you articulate to yourself then, I can marry these two passions in the FBI, or did that identification come a little bit later and you knew you just wanted to get into sort of law enforcement in general first? Well, kind of both, um, law enforcement in general. But what I did was I went to a career fair. And I know this is going to sound like I'm 105, but I go and talk to this uh, FBI guy and uh, he said, you know, what, what is it you're looking to do? And I said, well, I'm starting college. I want to be competitive. I'd like to be an FBI agent. He goes, well, you're not qualified. I said, I, I know that. That's why I'm going to college, but I'd like to know what classes to take to be you know, more competitive. He goes, well, you can never be an agent. You're a female and females can be secretaries or file clerks. You cannot be an agent. So that wasn't uh, very encouraging <laughs> to say the least. But um, so what I did, because the FBI was not hiring women at the time that I was uh, starting college. So I ended up going into the probation department and then a police department. And the reason was I thought at least the skill sets that I would be developing there would be transferable to the FBI. I still wasn't daunted. I was going to get into the FBI. <laughs> so I had to, to wait. Uh, it was 1973 when women filed a class action suit against the FBI. I was not a part of that, but um, to allow women in to be agents. Just to follow up on this one piece for a moment, would you say that it's because you are inherently optimistic that you knew you were like, it's going to work out. Of course, I'm going to be part of the FBI. Or would you say that it's 100 percent, you know, tenacity, like come hell or high water, I will make them change the rules or I will I will be there when the rules are changed or maybe a mixture of both? I would say B. <laughs> if you're giving me A and B choice, yes, it was the last. <laughs> I'm extremely determined. Um, I persevere and, and very resilient. Um, I can have my feelings hurt uh, and have, but typically it's like, okay, brush yourself off, get back in, get into the arena. And in this one, being told no, when it was something within, I knew my skill set. Again, I, I joke about, I love music and opera and opera singers, but I can't sing at all. So if I had said, I want to aspire to be an opera singer, that would be ridiculous. But I knew I had the the tools to do this job. So I wasn't, I was looking at no as a challenge. Mm -hmm. A temporary no. So yes. while you were in probation and the police department and the like, everything that you were doing, were you doing it with an eye toward joining the FBI ultimately? Or did you rotate in the present and sort of in, in chapter fashion uh, thrive with that as your environment around it? Oh, I love the way you put that. So yes, uh, it was incremental in chapter fashion because 
I ended up, you know, the motivation first was I just wanted to get into the law enforcement arena, but then I actually enjoyed it and I knew I was getting some excellent experience. So I was in the moment, but I always did keep my eye on the ball, the goal, which was to get into the FBI. So I did actually uh, join a little bit later than I had originally planned. I did seven years before getting into the FBI. And it was just that, um, like I said, I was having a good time and then realized, okay, it's, it's time to go for the real goal now. Can you share um, one or a couple stories or experiences that you had in the police department or in probation that either prepared you for the FBI or that surprised you with its impact on who you are or who you became? Okay. Those are, those are great questions too. One that's kind of funny um, that helped build my resilience. I think when I first got uh, with the police department and I, I referred to it as off my training wheels, I didn't have a training officer with me and I was driving, this is in Chino, California. And this, it used to be one of the largest areas for, for cows, it, it, which seems kind of strange now because that's so built up. But my first call was to uh, remove a cow from Central Avenue. She was creating a big traffic jam and people were honking and, you know, she was just creating a mess. So I get there and when I get out of the car, the first thing I realize is they didn't teach us this in the academy. I mean, how do you move a cow uh, that was totally undaunted by, you know, honking horns and people yelling at her and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, you know, do you push? Do you pull? What, What happens? So I had to call for backup. And all of my male counterparts never let me live that down. The first call you have and you can't even get a cow out of the street. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was humorous. But I think what really helped is because, number one, I realized I had to call for backup. I mean, it looked silly of me not being able to accomplish this, but it helped me learn. And, and it was humorous. But it toughened me up. And I think some of the guys actually respected the fact that I did call for help because there's so much teamwork. I mean, this was kind of a funny one, but when you're looking at some of the more dangerous types of situations you're in, it, it is teamwork and you need to have a backup. So it was a good lesson uh, for me. And I think others recognized it. It's funny because I was just in Chino actually a couple of weeks ago. So oh, you're right. Okay. That, that thought of, of there like a cow being on the loose in an intersection is so surprising. Um, <laughs> but just today, actually on, on the day that you and I are taping this at Newark, Penn Station, on the line between Penn Station and Newark, there was a huge longhorned cow that was loose on the tracks. And we were like, only in New York City would something this crazy happen. Slash, all of the alerts going out were, you know, the tracks are closed for police activity. So um, <laughs> as it is now, as it was then, the police are who you call when you have a loose cow. And it doesn't matter if it's 2023 or, you know, 1993 or whatever. So that's quite funny. So you you learn, or after the class action, now the academy, the FBI academy opens to women. So can you share about what that climate was like and what was it like um, applying for and being accepted into the Federal Bureau of Investigation? Well, applying for the FBI, there was no welcome wagon, but you have to put yourself back in that that time frame. So we're talking mid, mid-80s at this point. Um, and it's like the FBI didn't really know what to do with women. Although women had been allowed for a while, there were not that many women in. So um, ended up in the class that we had, it was a class of 40 people at Quantico, Virginia for the Academy. And we had one of the uh, largest contingent of women was eight. So there were 32 men and eight of us uh, women. And a couple of women did not graduate. They didn't, didn't pass the class. I think what we experienced, and I'll say we, because my female colleagues too, 
is, again, no welcome wagon. Nobody was mean. You know, it wasn't that, that you're mistreated in that respect, but totally underestimated. I used to use the expression, it's like, oh, if you can walk and chew gum, they're like, oh my gosh, look, she's really good. They set the bar so low, you know, like, oh, look, a female that can do that, that they were not even looking at us as, as an equal or that we could do or perform the same that they could. And that, that was very frustrating because of course, that's a form of rejection and not acceptance. And that's pretty much how it was uh, on steroids once you got into the field after graduating and, and getting into a field office. Can you share at that time, um, because as life has evolved, there have been times when in law enforcement or service academies, the PT requirements are identical uh, regardless of gender. And there are times when the requirements are different. So when you applied to the academy and the graduation requirements, the application requirements and the graduation requirements were the, did the females have the same requirements as the men or was it different in any way? It was different. Um, only in the PT, physical training part, mm-hmm. not in the academics or the firearms, none of that. But yes, in the PT, because it was um, running, it was sprinting, it was push-ups, pull-ups, those sorts of things. And typically, most women have the less upper body strength, so they would have a lower number for the point uh, metrics that you had to receive. So in that area, yes, it was different. At that time, was it acknowledged or um, noted that women have also different strengths in terms of stress management. And during your Quantico training, as you simulated real life, high stress experiences, was it observed that women thrived under certain types of stress better than men? Um, I, I'm going to, op- the operative word there being thrive. No, I don't think it was. I think that actually came later um, when I recognized that it was being acknowledged and recognized was maybe a few years after I had been in my field office. My first field office was Albuquerque, New Mexico. And then I was transferred to Tampa, Florida. And in Tampa, Florida, I was on what they call a criminal or reactive squad. The only female on the squad, the only one they'd ever had. And it soon when we were looking at different situations where um, you were trying to de-escalate a, a situation, they kind of quickly acknowledge the fact, well, maybe Jana, we should send Jana in to go talk to the significant other or center almost like a domestic uh, situation in local law enforcement where you're a first responder. And those are some of the most dangerous situations because they're very highly emotional. And if you have like a, a man and a wife and they're yelling at each other, you walk in and then you have the risk of you're the bad guy. All of a sudden they're kind of making up and now you're the problem. And it was the same thing with cases that I dealt with in the FBI. So I, soon I did become the one that would go in and either talk, typically the, the female, but try to calm her down. And then they realized, yeah, whatever it is she's saying to her in there, it seems to be de-escalating. And that way we can take the, the male part of it and do what you know, we need to do so they're not fighting with each other. So back to the academy I hope it's okay that I'm asking all of these questions. Oh, I'm so fascinated by it all. It's great. Um, yeah. While you were among that class of eight females and the 32 men, um, did you and the other females talk about the the historical 
fact that you guys were like, did, did you did you appreciate the the how grand this was and, and everything and in that moment? I mean, of course, you appreciated it. But was it something that you discussed often that you were aware of? I think that's the word I'm looking for the awareness of it. And can you describe for listeners, you know, how did that feel? How did that feel when you were running in Quantico and there's like trees and you were just like, I am here. I'm at Quantico. Like it, it just it seems so incredible in general, and let alone being such a trailblazer and part of such a historical class um, in those first few years, what was that? What was that like in the moment? In the moment, it was fantastic, and I would say I pinch myself. It's like I got in, I'm here, and I, you know, I'm going to graduate. I know I'm going to graduate. I like all of us. It was like, okay, just don't get injured. You know, you're pretty much in the prime of your life. You know, when you're in your late twenties, you know, early thirties, but if you break a, a leg or an arm or, you know, twist something that's going to put you out of, out of the competition. So was always mindful of that. But to your point, Quantico is beautiful. Um, and I did a lot of running there as, as we all did, but um, typically I, we would run together as a class, but then we also ran on our own time. And that was my time to reflect. And it was almost, I'm not someone who gets giddy, but I'm going to use the word giddy because that's how I would get. It was like, like I am here. And what I have been hoping for for 20 years is going to become a realization. And this might be jumping ahead, but since we're in that moment of, you know, fulfilling your passion and your dramatic purpose, if you had to only pick one, what would be the proudest day for you of it all thus far? Is it the day you got accepted? Is it the day you graduated? Is it the day something, you know, somewhere in your career where of all that, what was that one moment that you feel was penultimate? You know what? I'd never thought about it, but I can tell you spontaneously, it was the day I got accepted. So we're, we're talking snail mail, right? So yes. I get, and, and the FBI, as I learned later, it, it kind of moves in its own time. It's the federal government, right? Because when they say, well, you're here in a few days, that could translate to a few weeks. Okay. So, and you know, when you're waiting for something, right? I go and I look in the mail, nothing, nothing. And it's like, you know, don't call, don't call anybody, just, you know. Hmm. And so when I saw the envelope, it was almost like the, the Academy Awards, right? So I'm going to look. <laughs> and so, because I don't know what it said, was I accepted or not accepted? Um, I felt I did done well, but you don't know those things. And so just opening the piece of paper and it said, you know, congratulations, uh, you have been accepted to the FBI Academy. Totally. Yeah. I, I love this conversation so much. You're, I see parallels in my own tiny, humble existence to yours in the way of articulating certain passions and, you know, dreams and intentions early on and not being dissuaded by that and having so many things happen. And so I just, I agree that in those early moments, that's sort of when you become part of the tiniest group. So that's the, you have surmounted the largest challenge at that point. Like once you're in everything, yes. you're already at the top, right? And so that first moment when you're young and when you get that yes, that means that you've made it before, you know, and, and a facsimile have made it, right? Because the whole point, you get into a school and you have to graduate and all this stuff, but the symbolism for someone who has worked, to your point, for decades for something that was not even legal for you to be a part of a short time prior. It's just phenomenal. I can imagine that feeling. So you graduate and then you get stationed or sent, posted to uh, Albuquerque, you said. Correct. Correct. And, and that was funny. So after, um, I, I'm not sure what week it was, you know, 10 or something, it, they do that. It's almost like the Emmys or the Academy Awards. Um, they The FBI 
I look at it as they tease you, right? They ask where you want to go and then they make sure they don't send you there. But they would ask the top three offices that you would like to go to. And so then the day that they give you your assignment, it's in an envelope and you, we'd go up one by one and read off where we're going and they take pictures of us. Well, for me, and this shows how, how much uh, geography was not actually one of my strengths at the time. Um, so I opened this letter <laughs> and I, I'd never seen Albuquerque. If I had, I'd forgotten how it was spelled. And I'm looking at it going Albuquerque. Not not out loud, but I'm like Albuquerque, <laughs> and then I realized, oh my gosh, New Mexico! I'm going to New Mexico, um, which was fine. It was in the West, and I had wanted to go back to the West Coast if possible. Did did anyone get their first place? Was it is it a joke that that you don't get sent there ever, or, or generally speaking, do you get your top three? Well, I'm going back to when when I was in. I'm not sure what it is like now, even though I, I do keep in touch with quite a few active duty agents. But there, it was a joke. You pretty much did not get what you wanted except for the two largest uh, offices, Los Angeles and New York. Cause a lot of people were intimidated to go there because of you know, Los Angeles and New York, right? If you were from the Midwest, Nebraska, small town in Ohio, you, you know, your dream was not to go to New York city and the cost of living uh, was higher, but people from New York, a lot of them wanted to go back to New York, right? So they, they were able to go back to that office. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. So can you share about your trajectory from Albuquerque to Tampa and then eventually the very elite behavioral analysis unit and share what that journey was like for you? Okay. Well, my Albuquerque, it ended up being um, a very worthwhile office. I learned so much there. I was only there about 10 months. Uh, the reason being is um, I then got married to my husband, Dale Monroe. Uh, who was an agent and he was in the Tampa office and the way the FBI does that um, again, we would either, he could have come to Albuquerque. I could have come to Tampa and it's all just based on the agent contingent. So how many agents there are supposed to be in that office and if they are under uh, quota or above. And it just so happened that Tampa was, was down a few um, agents. So I, I went to Tampa. May I ask, were you allowed to date other agents in the academy? You were not allowed to date per se. And then like for the first, well, the first six weeks, you were not even allowed off campus. So that week six, when I went to a, a well, it wasn't even called a CVS thing, but a, but a drugstore, it was like, oh, it's like we'd been in prison or something I mean, it was because we hadn't been off campus or whatnot. But as far as, you know, we weren't fraternizing, if you will, but you did get to know each other. And Dale and I um, really liked each other. And then he had at the end of the academy had actually proposed to me. And I said, you know what? This is an artificial setting. We have not been in the real world here so it's like, uh, and I don't think, yeah, we, we need to give it a rest. We need to get to know each other. And I'm not sure how we're going to do that with me in Albuquerque and you in Tampa. Um, but we, I guess you'd call it dated uh, for about 10 months uh, and then got married. This is so exciting. So then, okay. So then you joined Tampa and um, what was your emphasis there initially well, then after those? Same thing. So both... Um, both divisions. So in Albuquerque, I worked violent crime and I was the only female on that squad. So then I go to Tampa and they had no women on the squad and they were going to put me on something else. Uh, so I went and said, Hey, with my background in the police department, probation, just where I was here, you have no females on this squad. Wouldn't it make sense uh, to put me on this squad? So they did. 
So I, I was the um, first and only female they had on the criminal squad. And, and that would be bank robberies, fugitives, kidnapping, um, anything that would be put into the violent crime or criminal category versus like white collar, which was bank fraud and embezzlement, uh, financial institution fraud, those types of crimes. And can I ask you as an aside, as we close the transition between Albuquerque to Tampa, you know, at the federal level, um, many people see it as just, and rightly so, the caliber is just through the roof. And the federal overlay, of course, touches every state and territory and jurisdiction. Um, you know, but underneath that overlay are humans, and humans are products of geographical areas of their country. So did you see, you know, did you sort of perceive differences in the types of crimes or the patterns, I should say, more specifically, that were present in Albuquerque and that surrounding area to Tampa? And in this first year of your career at the FBI, did you perceive certain patterns that were either encouraging for you or disheartening for you as a fellow American of people who were dealing with stuff in New Mexico versus Florida? Yeah, that's, that is a very interesting question. I've never been asked that before. Um, when I was in New Mexico, there was so much Indian reservation work. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard of or been to Gallup, New Mexico, but it's considered in the FBI a hardship office. And by that, it means it's and especially then, um, it's it's a very depressed, economically depressed area, and it's mainly the Indian Reservation. And unfortunately, the work there to me is is so sad because it's um, predominantly homicide, incest type of cases, a lot of uh, alcoholism going on. And so they sent me there uh, for a while, <laughs> and it was um, it was like talk about an indoctrination into things. And at the time, the the tribe would not recognize me uh, as an agent a woman, a female as an agent. So I had to, when I was conducting some investigations, I'd have to take a male counterpart with me to, to be taken seriously. So there were a lot of other types of crimes that I worked in New Mexico, but predominantly was the Indian reservation. So you go to Tampa, Florida, and although of course Florida had native Americans also, but in that particular area, there weren't uh, many tribes or the, the type, same type of work that I was working in Gallup. And there it was interesting. Tampa wasn't that large at the time. Of course, Miami was much, much larger, but they had um, more bank robberies per capita than LA or New York. It, it was amazing. We used to, <laughs> you know, it's just like, stop it. I, we didn't know if it was proximity of branch banking to freeways or, or what it was. So um, I did a lot of bank robbery work and a lot of fugitive work. And fugitives, um, after terrorism, after 9-11, um, the FBI had to dedicate much more resources to terrorism. So not that they stopped, but really declined on working bank robberies and fugitives because the locals, the marshals have primary jurisdiction over fugitives. And bank robberies, you can have your local sheriff and, and police departments work. So we didn't do, we, the Bureau, didn't do nearly as much work that after 9-11. I was going to say, it was my understanding U.S. Marshals have exclusive jurisdiction over federal fugitives. No, it wasn't exclusive. No, it was a part. Okay. They had primary, but not exclusive. And sometimes we'd partner with them, too. They would request assistance on a fugitive matter because there were far that, more FBI agents than, than marshals. And at that time, would you say a hallmark of the culture was cooperation? When when you called on on help with each other, was it like, okay, secretly we're going to 
you know, wrestle and, and see who's, who's better or was it, was it really collaborative or, or was there a bit of both? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you kind of a bifurcated answer. So at the street working level, it was cooperative. And I loved that. It was real teamwork. It's like, hey, we've got this going on. You know, and you've got to ma- build and maintain those partnerships. But it wasn't like so often you, you see where it's like, oh, I'm going to take this case. No, I'm going to steal it. However, um, as I moved up the ranks, and I'm getting ahead a little bit here, but as you moved up the ranks, it wasn't always quite as cooperative. So it, more in the, some of the leadership roles uh, you saw, uh, I experienced anyway, some of that tussling that you sometimes see in TV shows where it's like, oh, no, here comes the FBI. They're going to take over the case. Yeah. And, and so there was some of that, you know, chest pounding, if you will. <laughs> Fascinating. Because oftentimes, especially in media and entertainment culture, it's portrayed as the reverse, you know, leadership are the collaborators and it's right. boots on ground to have the territorial nature and whatever. Um, so then can you share um, how the trajectory from you in Tampa at with the criminal division and then eventually being accepted to and joining the behavioral analysis unit? Okay, so when I was in Tampa, there was a program called the uh, NCABC, the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, and I became a coordinator. All that meant is in that whole area of Florida, if the locals had a case that was acceptable for the FBI's criteria to go to the behavioral, well, it was called the Behavioral Science Unit then, and then changed to Behavioral Analysis Unit. I'll tell you about that Mm -hmm. in a minute. But um, so let's say that some uh, local police department was asking for link analysis or offender traits and characteristics, like who would commit something like this. It would be my job, my responsibility to get all of the forensics together, all the case materials that would be required for the profilers at Quantico. So by doing that, I got to know um, several of the profilers at Quantico. So I had gone back for some training. So it really helps when you know people that are in the unit. And I was so interested in it. I think I read just about everything that you can imagine. And at the time, Dale's going, do you ever read anything other than forensics or serial killers? <laughs> That's like a good nighttime story, you know? <laughs> right. so, so when we got transferred um, to the Washington field office, there, I, I was on a squad, again, a criminal squad for a very short time, but there was an opening in the behavioral science unit and they're not even advertised. Um, it wasn't a requirement uh, to, to actually put a posting up. So the two guys that I had spent a lot of time with when I was in Tampa gave me a call and said, hey, you might want to take, um, and I, I took a vacation day. It sounds odd, but I took a vacation day. They said, tomorrow because um, John Douglas, who was the unit chief at the time, is interviewing people for this open position. So that's what I did. I, I went, and I say down, I went down and interviewed because the behavioral science unit, just like um, in an old movie, Silence of the Lambs, was two floors below the gun cleaning vault, which was on the first level. And it was not designed as office space. It was supposed to be uh, J. Edgar Hoover's bomb shelter, in case there was ever a bombing, that's where the director of the FBI was going to go be safeguarded. But that's where we built uh, our offices. I have to make sure I have this right in my head because it is so delicious. So at Quantico, you're saying there, yes. not the yeah. Washington field office, but at Quantico. At Quantico, yes. Underneath one of the main buildings, J. Edgar Hoover had, when he was director, had had built a bomb shelter and right. it's two levels below where they clean guns. And yes. in this basement area is where the behavioral then sciences, but now analysis unit exists. Right. Absolutely. Yes. It 
doesn't no windows now. and like, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't now, but it did, you know, for like, I don't know, 15 years or so. But in, in the movie you see, cause it was filmed there. You see the elevator going, you know, all the way down to, to the basement. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. So I go down to the basement and uh, was interviewed by uh, John Douglas, the unit chief and another agent. And it, it started out like a regular interview, like, you know, what do you bring to the table? Why do you want to do this? What's your experience? And so we go through the uh, performa uh, questions. And then John puts, uh, I think it was about five, eight by 10 pictures. He just pushes and they're grisly pictures, right? They're, they're a homicide case and, and kind of gruesome looking. And he pushes them across to me, but then doesn't ask any questions. So I'm looking at him and I said, well, um, what, do you, what do you want me to do? He goes, I'm observing you. And I said, well, I know you're, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> what, why are you observing me? And he goes, well, but being a female, he goes, we've had other women that have uh, shown an interest and they either grimaced or said they couldn't look at the pictures um, and they, they just couldn't do that sort of a thing. I said, well, I know very well what I'm getting into. And I, and see, this is what I do say is not a good interview strategy. I said, I took the liberty of looking you up, Mr. Douglas, and you had uh, taught tennis in the military before coming and to be being an FBI agent. I said, I had worked as a police officer, probation. I worked on homicides. So why would you be more qualified to be in this unit than I am? <laughs> Again, that's not yes. a really good interview strategy, but to his credit, he hired me the next day anyway. What did he say in response in that moment? <laughs> he laughed. <laughs> oh, good. So he sort of took it with a plum. Yeah, John, uh, in, in my experience with him, had, has a very good sense of humor because I didn't really know him. I, I'd only met him then. But as I got to know him as my boss and a colleague, he had a very good sense of humor. So I think it took him by surprise, <laughs> but that was just his spontaneous utterance. He just started laughing. I mean, your point is well taken, um, yeah. and I'm glad you said it. So you joined the behavioral unit, and how long a transition did you have from the Washington field office to there? Could you join the next day? And can you share what it was like to join that unit and your experience there? Well, I'm going to back up just a second because again, zero welcome wagon for Washington field office. That was probably one of the worst in that um, there was a squad, there, a lot, lot, it was a much bigger office than I'd been in. And there was a squad that had 19 agents on it. I was going to be the 20th. And it was uh, basically FCI, foreign counterintelligence. And it was on the Chinese I had zero experience in that. And oh, by the way, all 19 of the agents on there were female. Kind of interesting. And then the criminal squad, which I had just left from both Albuquerque and Tampa, had 19 agents. They were all male. And that was like the squad at the time, you know, go out and do violent crime and all this kind of stuff. So there was a waiting list of about 23 agents um, to get on that squad. So I go up um, to the special agent in charge and... It, this was kind of great too. I didn't know it at the time, but his wife was an agent, female agent. So that was kind of nice. So I go and I just said, sir, you know, you've just assigned me or the office has just assigned me to the squad, you know, blah, blah, blah. I have been police. I've done all these things. Um, it doesn't make sense to put me on foreign counterintelligence. And, oh, by the way, you don't have any women on, on the squad. Is there a reason? And he said, no, there, there is that. That's an excellent point. I wasn't, uh, I was not aware of that. So he put me on the squad. Oh my gosh. You know, for me jumping ahead of 23 men who'd been on a list for like some of them over a year, I was not, uh, not well liked. Let's put it that way. So it was 
really fortuitous because I was on the squad about four months um, and we don't have time for some of the, the battles with my colleagues, let's, let's call it. Oh, but no. yeah, when this interview opportunity came up and then I got hired uh, the next day, um, I think they were, <laughs> they were more than happy. It's like, okay, she's leaving. Now we can, we can open up the list again. So I, um, I joined a week later. I'm sorry for that. What sounds like, I don't know if contentious is the right word, but challenging at a minimum. Yeah, um, it was. Did, did you know if that was a temporary environment and did it calm down for women in your, in your wake after is sort of, I think what I'm getting at, like, or was I, I think, it always a culture of? No, I think in, in the wake after, and we're talking years, the wake, it, it calmed down. Um, it really did. And I think what we're, you know, what I'm focusing on is what it was like at the time, right? I mean, yeah. that I, um, I have a hard time when people look back and I mean, we all do it to a certain extent and, and are passing judgment or giving an opinion on something that happened X amount of years ago. You've got to put yourself in the culture, climate and environment of what it was like then. So, yeah. And, and when I got to um, behavioral science, I was, again, I was thrilled. It's another one of those. And you asked me at the beginning, which, which was the best. Well, this was second uh, to the first time of finding out that I'm an agent. So it's like, okay, now I've landed in the, in the unit, uh, going to be doing the work I want to do. But we had um, 18 months of training while you're on the job. So I was invited to work cases and do consultations right away. But um, anybody who had been new, and there were two other people, two other men that had not been there that long. They'd been there about four or five months. And so we did a lot of training together. And when I say training, uh, we'd go to medical examiner, we'd go to autopsies, either from a coroner or a medical examiner. We'd go to different crime scenes. Uh, we had courses that we needed to take on behaviors, on serial killers, on motivations, some psychology classes. So it was really comprehensive and immersive training. And it sounds like to me, ev everything, of course, takes an expertise. Everyone's work is so honorable and impressive. But it, it seems to me that at, at the BAU, that it's just like the level of expertise, the level of specificity required throughout the day. It's just like such a, a painstaking, deliberative process and body like that's why it is so elite to me it's it's sort of like you are you're all these slices of the pie you know your emmys and your psychologists and your your photographer like you're you're all of these things i can't even articulate the tip of the iceberg of them but that to me is why it's so impressive is like you're the top in your of your field of all of these different pies within that well yeah thank you that that's kind of a neat way of putting it i hadn't thought about that either but yeah, you had to look at everything. Details are key in this type of work. You overlook one little thing, and that could have been, and, and we've had cases like that, that could have been the piece of the puzzle that you needed to resolve it. So all the details did involve that comprehensive, like you said, a photographer or this or that. We had, um, it was so interesting, we had a small, it was a small police department, and they had a hom homicide, and they hadn't had one there, oh my gosh, for like 15 years. So they didn't have officers that were very experienced in it. So 
it landed on my desk. And so I let them know what we needed. I said, we need, you know, the, where the body was found. We need some aerial shots. We need, you know, the crime scene where it was quadranted off. We need the victimology. Well, what they sent me, they didn't have a plane or anything. So when I had said aerial shots, the sheriff got on top of his pickup truck on the hood and took a picture down because that was as high as he could get. And I'm not making fun, but it was so interesting depending on the sophistication of the department, you get something from New York City, and we didn't get too much from LAPD because they had so many resources and technical advantages. But you get in some of these rural areas, um, and I learned quickly that I had to be very specific about what we were looking for so that we could that we could help them. As an American citizen, I understand you know the disparate nature of resources um, within law enforcement bodies. But what I always hope is that for any department or precinct or group that needs those resources, that they, without hesitation, ask for it. Because that is what the FBI is there for, you know, in response to requests. And so to me, it's what's heartening, you know, what's more heartening than disheartening about these small places without resources is that you guys have those resources and expertise and are there to help and collaborate so that all Americans get the benefit of all the resources. Absolutely. And to me, that's what it's for. And you're talking, you're exactly right, to, to protect and serve. And that's a, a tagline for a lot of law enforcement because that's what it is. But at the way that our you know infrastructure is established, taxpayers pay for this service. And I think you're right. Anytime that you can leverage what the resources are, be them human resources or technologically, equipment, those sorts of things. You need that cooperation, that collaboration, because that way, you know, you're, you're using the money that you have, you're using that efficiently. And more importantly, I think the expertise and the knowledge of people who have had more uh, opportunities or more experience than someone else. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. So if it's okay, I would love to ask you about a specific case that you worked on in Tampa which was okay. the Oba Chandler case, or I should say, um, more appropriately, the Joan Rogers and her daughters, Michelle and Christy case. Yes. Can you share when that case landed on your desk and um, how that unfolded for you? So this was the most unique case in all of my career because it's the only one where I literally saw it from beginning, uh, from the bodies, when the bodies were being fished out of Tampa Bay, uh, to to the ending, and I'll, I didn't go to the execution, but uh, Oba Chandler was executed. So this is when I was a um, an NCAVC coordinator in the Tampa office, and the background of the case for for the Rogers case is uh, Joan Rogers and her husband Hal. They lived in a small farming rural area of Ohio. Two daughters, Christy, who was seventeen, or Michelle, I'm not sure which way it was, but their daughters were seventeen and fifteen, and um, for graduation, what you wanted was, they hadn't really been out of the state of Ohio, wanted to go to Florida to go to Disney uh, Disney World, and then wanted to go see the ocean. So it was the high school. And then, um, like I said, they just wanted to get out of the, the area for a while. So they went to Disney World, came to Tampa, and were at a motel. And this is where we, we look at it after the fact. It appears somebody joined them maybe out, out by the pool area. They met somebody at the hotel. Um, and the next thing you know, they, they were missing and their car was at the site of where you go into the, uh, into the ocean where you dock a boat and could go out into boat. Mm-hmm. And they, they were missing at this point. Nobody knew where they were. They had gone, um, 
contacted the hotel and uh, one of the, the maids there said it doesn't look like their beds had even been slept in. So it was about three days later when three bodies surfaced um, in, in Tampa Bay. And there had been so much decomposition of the bodies because it was really warm water in, in that. And took a few days through DNA to identify them. And it was very unfortunately um, the Rogers. And what, it, what had happened was they were found, they had um, 55 pound cinder blocks that were tied around their neck and they had been hog tied. It was difficult to tell whether they had been sexually assaulted, but we believe they had. And the reason it was difficult is because of the significant decomposition. And even the worst part, if all of that isn't bad enough, um, from the autopsy, it revealed that they had been thrown in alive. So <sighs> they drown. Um, and so then... It was, you know, like, okay, well, what are we going to do with, with this case? And St. Petersburg Police Department worked the case. They had um, augmentation from other departments. This was a, it would be a heinous crime anywhere, but for Tampa, which was predominantly tourism, people were af afraid to go there. And, and so Tampa was, they had the city government and everybody was very much involved in this. Uh, my involvement, I was there at uh, when they fished the bodies out of the water because I was a an FBI coordinator for Quantico for the Behavioral Science Unit. And I then helped the officers get together. Well, I'll fast forward. Um, they then were working the case themselves and did not invite the FBI in. I got transferred. Uh, so it's a year later and uh, the case had gone cold. And so the officers asked for the help of the behavioral science unit. And that was my case. They then gave it to me. And I had so much background in the case. I received a call from this um, one of my colleagues in the St. Petersburg Police Department because they were the responding agency in addition to the sheriff. So to see them, you know, literally fished out of the water, uh, then I helped uh, with a few investigative things. We didn't have jurisdiction. We, the FBI, did not have jurisdiction. So just because I'd been involved with um, some of the officers, I, you know, I would offer some help, and and but I wasn't that involved. But I was, oh, I sure kept aware of what was going on with the case. Fast forward a year later, I get uh, transferred to the Behavioral Science Unit. Well, after two years, the case goes cold. And that had such a chilling effect and impact on Tampa. Like a lot of Florida is tourism, right? Well, tourists didn't want to go there. It was such a heinous, egregious crime. You've got a mother and a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old that tourism was down. And some of the city officials felt it was directly related to this case being unsolved. So the officers brought it to Quantico. And so I became the, uh, the case agent on it. So we're looking at Every piece of evidence, when, you, when you, you want new optics, new set of eyes, and let's get all the evidence out of the bag. What is this? Who is this? Let's go over it again. And there was a little brochure, a little torn piece of brochure paper with directions from the motel to a doc. And I said, well, um, whose handwriting is that? They said, Joan Rogers. I said, how do you know? Deaf. No, nobody said a word. I said, how do you know? Who verified? They hadn't. Nobody had ever done that. So um, two of the officers flew to Ohio, which is where um, Hal Rogers was still living. He was the father who lost his entire family. And uh, they showed it to me. So well, that's not my wife's handwriting. So it's like, okay, that's a big missing, a small, but big missing piece of this. So 
when we learned that, I said, hey, why don't you put it up on billboards? So this is before the internet, right? And since I had spent so much time in Tampa, Dale Mabry was a very large um, street that went, you know, all the way across town. And so I said, why don't you ask all of the um, the business owners there to contribute? Because you have to pay for billboards, right? And I said, so just put them up for free, blow up the handwriting on every single one of these. And so that's the heaviest trafficked area and people are going to see it. Well, in less than 48 hours, uh, they had calls, two to three calls, all giving the same name of Oba Chandler. Now, you would typically think, why would somebody know somebody's handwriting? Well, he had been an aluminum siding. He was in his own um, business contractor and put up, you know, in Florida, you get eaten up alive if you don't have a screened in porch. There's bugs all over the place. So he did that. And apparently he was not very good at it. And then to add insult to injury, he was in small claims court with quite a few people. And he would write these prolifically long letters, nasty, uh, back to the people why he shouldn't be responsible for it. So, of course, they were angered. So they, they recognized the handwriting. And it was from that point then um, he was interviewed and denied it, uh, denied uh, that he had had any contact with it. He said he would uh, had contact with them just to give them. Uh, here's, you know, here's the way, the road to get there, but he didn't have anything to do with it. And it was through great police investigative work and surveillance that they were able to tie him not only to that, but to um, another murder previous to that. And we still think to this day, because of the sophistication, he was by himself. Originally, we thought to overpower um, three women Granted, the other two were still girls, but, you know, 17 and 15, um, they had to have an accomplice. But our theory of that is that Joan um, was protecting her daughters. And he said, you know, if you if you don't cooperate, I'm going to hurt them. And I think what happened then is he took her first, like you do, you know, strategically in military, you take out the leader first. And then he had the two young girls to deal with himself. Which reminds me of the Yosemite murders, also yes. an adult and two daughters. It yes. was just one monster, um, and he got away with it through by that separation, to your point, and individual elimination. Um, right. And I think what people forget, too, is the how paralyzing fear can be. We all react differently in different situations, but I, I know I've, I've seen people and, and witnessed it in, in cases where they're literally paralyzed by fear. They, they can't run. They can't fight back. And we don't know if that happened, but that certainly could have been a, played a part in it. Right. And threats. You know, I would do yeah. anything to protect a loved one. So if someone told me to do something, I would do it if, if it meant protecting them. To right. I think that's how we can all relate to that. It's somebody that you love and you care for. And if you actually think for a split second that you can help save them or prevent whatever is going to happen, uh, um, many people would do that. Can I ask you in that moment when you said, who verified, how do you know? Mm-hmm. Would you say that was based on your experience, your training, your instinct, or some measure of all three? I believe all three. And I'm going to say something here. Uh, I believe overall, okay, I, I, I don't like statistics because you can editorialize them to say anything that you want. But again, with my experience, overall, women are better 
at discerning these little things and you, you, you want to call it your little voice or something, your inner voice that's telling, Oh no, I, this isn't good. I shouldn't go here. I shouldn't do this. And so often, you know, you'll say, well, it was just a feeling. It was just a sense. And I think way too often we ignore that. You might not be able to articulate or describe what it is, but as human beings, when you can tap into that, that's a warning sign. And I think, you know, for me, it was that, that intuition. It's like, I'm, I'm very detailed, very detail oriented. And it's like, well, if you don't know that, you know, we definitely have to ask that. That means there's somebody else involved here because if, if it's not their handwriting, it, it could be the person who was actually the offender, which is what it ended up being. But I think it was the training. Um, and at that time, my experience that gave me the confidence to speak up. I think, again, we as women will have these things. And I've had many of interview when you go back in retrospect and they'd say, oh, yeah, I, I had a sense, but I didn't want to say anything because I knew people would laugh or they would start challenging me. You know, you have to be able to scientifically say why instead of just said, I have a sense or I have a feeling. That is so interesting because earlier in our conversation, and then I, I thought of this question and then I forgot to ask it, but I was wondering if... Um, it seemed like there's this pattern where you constantly have to go to someone in a decision-making capacity and either educate them or remind them of your background and why and how you were qualified for the position or the issue in, in front of you. And I was going to ask if that was exhausting or if it, that was empowering. And this confidence that you're talking about, I'm wondering if that seemingly repetitive or potentially exhausting pattern that you were engaged in if that was part of the preparation for you for that moment to then solve this case and bring justice for these three women. Wow. You know, I look what you said, it's exhausting, but it was kind of like a spectrum. I think it evolved because I always would prepare myself mentally. It's like, okay, they're going to go like, well, what does she know? Why is she here? You know, one of those type of things. I always did it very professionally. You know, there's no reason to, to misbehave in that, but it was like, yes, I'd almost have to give a very brief, you know, resume uh, as to what I was doing. And it became later empowering as I was able to go up the ranks where you actually had the empowerment to go with, you know, the title and what to, to go with it. And I found um, in my latter two roles um, of special agent in charge and then assistant director of, uh, I actually helped start the cyber division for the FBI after 9-11. Wow. The FBI didn't have a cyber division. They had cyber investigators, but not a whole division. Um, by that time, and it's an old military expression, I think I'd earned my stripes and something else, which I think is wonderful, the men, and again, still predominantly men, the younger men, now, of course, I'm older than almost everybody when, you, when you're the one in charge, they had much more of a, I don't want to say respect, but an acceptance. There had been women in other positions, and it's like, it's like so you've got a, a female boss, okay, they would judge me, and I felt this, by how I interacted with them or what I did or what I, I didn't have the sense of that testing like I'd had for the first, you know, 20 years through something is like, you know, what do you know? You've got to prove yourself. You have to work twice as hard uh, to, to prove something where everybody else who has the same credentials, they already assume that they've proven themselves. That really seemed to change when I got into the senior leadership roles. Going back to the handwriting for a moment, an additional layer question. So you talked about that, that moment where you spoke up. Was there something about the handwriting um, looking back or in that moment that was notable 
in a way that you felt? Did you did you interpret something notable about the handwriting itself? Yes, I did in that. And now here again, I know we don't uh, teach cursive as much, but in the era that I was, a lot of women did cursive. This was printing and it was block type printing. And it looked to me, and I'm certainly, that's not my field, but if I had just looked at it, you know, I would have said, oh, a man wrote this. A man put this down here. So that was my first inclination in in looking at that. Totally. That's what I was getting at, sort of. I And I, I part of me wondering that is because I feel like I've seen and still see often, I think um, maybe in a certain vocations you have access or you have exposure to many people's actual handwriting. And it's yeah. sort of like, it gives you a glimpse into the world. And so you do start seeing those patterns. And of course, there's always exceptions, but you can sort of tell oftentimes. And yes, when it now that it sounds like that. Um, so were you at the trial? No, I was not at the trial and I did not go to the execution. Um, that there's still, I, I don't want to get off on a, a tangent or anything, but there's something about an execution. And I remember when Ted Bundy, a uh, pretty notorious serial killer, he was executed at Stark uh, prison in Florida. And I was there, not at the execution. I was in Florida and driving to work and on the radio, there were all these people Jeez. cheering. They were like, and you know, Hey, whoa, whoa, this is great. You know, you think you were at a football game. I can make it analogous to a sporting event. And I pulled over because it, I, I was surprised at myself, but it was, it was sickening to me. Now, what he did was egregious, you know, it was just horrible to me. That's when you look at those crimes in detail, it's like, ah, oh, that's the compelling and repulsive part compelling because it's so difficult to believe another human being could do that. And, you know, repul- that's why it's repulsive, but it's compelling because it, you, you're trying to understand. Well, I, w- I was looking at that's no reason, though, for us to be elated, right? We have defined justice um, in that, okay, now he's not going to kill anybody else. And maybe it's an eye for an eye if you want to interpret it that way. But for me personally, it was no reason to hoot and holler and have such a wonderful time. And so that behavior concerned me. And so when it came to Oba Chandler, so this is, you know, years later, I thought, you know, I really don't want to be, um, I just don't want that experience. I don't want to be part of it. Yeah. Um, I have been present for many different points within the legal proceeding and criminal justice system. And I find no joy ever in any of it in the criminal realm, um, regardless of the surety of, of, culpability and all of that. I feel many things. I feel many things in those moments, but joy is never one of them. Um, because there's always, there's always a tragic underlay. That's the whole point. Right. Um, And I can, that's, I totally, you said it better than I did because there was a gamut of emotions, but none of them happy, joy, yay, you know, none of that was going on. And, and you can get very esoteric looking at justice and, you know, it doesn't bring somebody back, but it might make the loved ones feel better. Um, but I think just far too often we kind of take those kind of matters and it's, maybe it's not ours to, to do that. I mean, as far as the the judging part of it. So I like, I, the, I've always worked in the justice system and, and I would always support it, but there were just things that I felt I didn't need to experience. Right. Something that I've wondered about this case in your experience living in Tampa. So the power of the ocean is, you know, almost omnipotent and, the thought, however, that these 55-pound cinder blocks um, wouldn't be successful in weighing down the bodies, do you feel that that, um, not happened all the time, but 
were you surprised or were you not surprised? Because yes, the, the ocean tends to sort of resurrect everything that's discarded so hideously there. Or do you feel that it was sort of a, a less than possible or less than plausible event that happened that really enabled, again, them to catch this monster? What I think it was is that uh, Oba Chandler underestimated the buoyancy of artifact of death, the gases that are a part of this, the warm water, everything that was in it. So uh, had he put much heavier weights on, would not have been the fact. But for that, he did underestimate that he obviously um, hadn't put a lot of thought into it. And it's like, this is heavy. They'll never come back up. So I think that's, that's what it was. We'll be right back with more of this story. Another thing that struck me about this case was the testimony at trial by a Canadian tourist who testified that he had done the same to her, that he had taken her out on his boat and sexually assaulted her. And she believed the only reason he returned her alive was because she had a friend waiting for her on the dock. And it reminded me of the Mary Vincent testimony at the Larry Singleton trial, also in Florida, where she flew across the country, the victim of a brutal attack by him in California and testified at his murder trial in Florida. And that helped can, you know, sway the jury that, yes, he had engaged in this repeated behavior, um, a survivor helping to get justice for murder victims. And it felt similarly here. Yeah, I thought the Larry Singleton case, that was another heinous, heinous case. But yeah, yes, I do think that is the reason because he knew that she had somebody there and who she was going out with. So it would be much, but you look at it, he still sexually assaulted her. But, you know, again, his testimony was that, you know, it was consensual and that's one of those. But I, yeah, I think the survivor was very instrumental in this case. Did Oba Chandler have a family in Florida? Yes, he had a family and his wife had uh, recently had another baby. So I think he had like, you know, three daughters and a son. So when, yeah. So when you look at it, he had kind of an extensive family and um, some of their their testimony or their comments were, were interesting um, after the fact, but he didn't have one visitor, according to the prison records, he didn't have anyone visit him once he was in prison. So his wife divorced him um, at the end of the trial, but none of his kids, his ex-wife, or I don't know if he had any friends or not, but nobody ever visited him. Wow. Another indicator of a monster that no one wants to be around. Yeah, absolutely. Jana, do you have any final thoughts about either the Oba Chandler case or your work in the offices we've been discussing? Yes, I, I do. And and I think one of the things um, I like to consider myself um, a glass half full, a positive person, not a Pollyanna, but I wasn't always that way. And um, kind of halfway through my behavioral analysis journey, I saw some things that I was pretty negative and I started thinking the worst about a lot of people. And I recognized it in myself after a couple of my friends that were close to me mentioned it to me also. Um, and if you can get anything positive about working on approximately 850 different homicide type cases in the behavioral science, it was that since I was immersed in that and I saw all this evil, it really did help me recognize the good of the many, because thank goodness, by percentage wise, there's far fewer like serial killers and homicides than there are regular people that don't harm others. And we're all just people and we, we all have baggage and whatnot, but we're basically people are good. 
Um, and it's these that they, that are evil that I worked with a lot. So I'm, I'm almost thankful that seeing the evil helped me purposefully look for the good. Thank you so much, Jana. Thank you for your service. Thank you for this incredible conversation. I've learned so much. I admire you so much. And I'm so grateful um, to have had this time with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was my honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.